Lord, we just thank you again for Joel and his ministry. Thank you for just a powerful message he delivered in the first service. We pray that you would again anoint him with your Holy Spirit to speak with power and freedom and unction. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that we as a congregation would have ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has to say. Lord, help us to hear your heartbeat this morning. And may our heartbeat begin to resonate with its rhythm. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Good morning. It is quite a joy and a privilege to be speaking with you uh, this morning. I had a wonderful time during the first service. And uh, we are grateful and we want to say thank you, not only for the support that you are to us, but um, South Shore supports lots of missionaries working in many different places. And since this is Mission Conference, I'd just like to say thank you for um, all of us that you support. It's really awesome um, to see how uh, dedicated uh, you are to God's work. In 1997, in a country called Guinea in West Africa, the same Guinea where the Ebola virus broke out just a few months ago, uh, there were some stirrings and God was starting to move. Now, the country of Guinea is mostly a Muslim country, and um, there are some churches and some growing churches and people coming to know the Lord, but they're very much a tiny minority in that country. And yet there was a young man there named Joel, who, uh, an African man there, who began uh, around 1997 to sense that God was calling the Guinean church to begin sending missionaries. And so, this Joel, who was convinced, started going, uh, he was a pastor, to the annual uh, pastor's meetings and began sharing the vision he had uh, for mission. And he was trying to convince the pastors of his denomination that, that God wanted them to be involved in mission as well. Well, he met some resistance, and those of you who are familiar with William Carey's story will see some parallels because uh, for several years he went to these meetings and started saying, hey, you know, we've received this good news. Of course, God intends us to share it with other people, with people who don't know the Lord. And, uh, you know, the other people thought, you're crazy. You know, Joel, what are you talking about? We receive missionaries. You know, we are the poor Africans, and we are used to Westerners coming to us and sharing the good news with us. You are crazy. We receive missionaries. We don't send missionaries. Well, Joel was persistent, and I think there was really a growing passion in his heart for what he sensed God was calling him to do. And so Joel would keep on uh, speaking to the other pastors of his denomination, saying, hey, look, uh, we're growing disciples. People are coming to the Lord here. Uh, haven't we been taught to, to obey everything that the Lord has commanded us? And part of that would be mission too. Uh, and finally, Joel convinced his denomination to send him as a missionary. And so this was their first missionary they sent. This was in 97 that he got sent. So I got the times a little bit off there. He started talking about missions a few years previous to that. But in 97, he gets himself sent. And uh, he gets sent to the northern part of Guinea, and he and his wife move in with a Muslim people group, and they start uh, witnessing to the people there. Well, people in, in, in Guinea are 
uh, you know, they're Muslim, and they've been Muslims for many years, and they've heard a little bit about Christianity, and they don't like most of what they've heard. And so he works really hard, he's really passionate, and after two years, he has no converts. Well, since Joel is one of the pastors of that denomination, of course, he gets invited back to the annual pastor's meetings, and they want to know, okay, Joel, you told us that we are involved, we are to be involved in mission work too, you convinced us to send you, and now you've gone, what's happening? Give us a report. And for several years, Joel had to say, hey, you know, I still believe that we should be sent as missionaries, but I I, I don't have anything good to report yet. Uh, Nothing has happened. We haven't seen a breakthrough. We haven't led any Muslims to the Lord. And he was starting to feel a little self-conscious. Remember, he is sent off with this sort of send-off. We're sending you, but we're used to receiving missionaries. We're not sure this is going to work. We're not sure this is really of God. And so his lack of success early on seemed to confirm what he had been told. Well, one day after the pastor's meeting, Joel's back up in the north uh, ministering to Muslim people. And one day he takes his motorbike and he takes the bike into town. And as he's going into town, he sees the village crazy man sitting there in the dump. And this is often what happens in Africa. You'll see people that have uh, mental problems and there's not really institutions that are there to help them. And they wander around town. They have certain places where they like to be. And this man was sitting there on the outskirts of town And he had collected all sorts of trash around him. And he was sitting there like usual. But this time, Joel sensed that God wanted him to reach out to the village crazy man. So he stopped his motorbike and he got down and he walked across the trash heap. And he stuck out his hand to greet the crazy man. And the crazy man looked up and he saw Joel's outstretched hand. And he hesitated for a moment and then he shook his hand. And in fact, the man got up, and Joel started talking with him, and he realized that, that, that this was a, a person with whom he could converse, and, and he, he was intelligible, and they started talking, and, and, and Joel said, hey, look, uh, I really uh, want to get to know you. Why don't you jump on the back of my bike, and I'll take you home. And uh, Joel took the village crazy man home, and uh, the man cleaned himself up, put on some clean clothes, had a meal, and they started talking. And the man ended up staying with him for several weeks. And, of course, uh, you know the end of the story. Joel's going to lead this man to the Lord. And so his first convert in this Muslim village is the village crazy man. And he comes to the Lord. Well, wouldn't you know it? The next time Joel goes to the pastor's meeting, he's got a good story to tell. The Lord has, has started something, and, and someone has come to the Lord. And, and that's how it all started. Joel having a passion for the Great Commission. And and Joel there uh, getting himself sent. And Joel seeing a person on the margins of society, the kind of people that we usually forget or we neglect or we don't think much of. And he obeyed God's call and he reached out to this man and he came to the Lord. Well, this was just the beginning, see. It's like when dominoes begin to fall because other people started coming to the Lord and a church was born. And then that church planted other churches and many Muslims started coming to the Lord. And so Joel would return yearly and give reports and soon other Guinean missionaries would go. And today, that church now has 17 missionary couples, African missionary couples that they have sent out to several different unreached people groups in Guinea. And it all started with one person. It all started with one person who had a vision 
to build a bridge. One person who was walking with God and and, and whose walk with God was somehow enabling that person to, to... to, to have this new life that God wants to give us. And, 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 and it was new, and it was fresh, and, and it was something valuable. It was something worth sharing with others. And, and, and he took a risk. He stepped out. He stepped out in front of his denomination, and then he stepped out on the trash heap, and God blessed what he did. But it all started with one person that had a, a bit of a passion in his life and surrendered that to the Lord. It has been said that one person filled with passion is much better than a hundred people who are vaguely interested. And I think as we come to the beginning of our mission conference, uh, we know that, that, that motivation for mission is a, is a crucial problem. It's a crucial challenge because we have resources, we have people, But sometimes that passion isn't there that we need to be able to use our resources and our people and our connections in concert with with God's sovereignty and with what God is doing all around the world so that we can contribute in a meaningful way, in a significant way to what God wants to do. And so I think as we start our mission conference and as we begin to think about what God might lay on our hearts to pledge this year for our uh, offering, for our faith offering this year, it's, it's very wise for us to start taking a look at our own hearts and to begin to say, what is motivating me as I hear God speak to me in church and as I, as I spend time in God's word and I, and I learn from him, what is God saying to me? And how am I hearing God's voice? And how do I process what I'm learning? And how do I let that change me? How do I make concrete decisions based on what I'm learning from God's Word in everyday life so that I am learning and growing and obeying what God has told me? I want you to think for just a few moments about the people that God has used, both in Scripture but also in history. And you will find that as men and women respond to what God has shown them, they open up themselves to hear from God again because they've already been obedient to what they have heard and they've done something with it. And I think that we here represent an amazing body of Christ that, 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 that should be learning from God and loving God and growing with God and having our lives changed. And I think the more we hear from God and do something with it, the more we place ourselves in a position to hear from God again. Because God will look down and say, there's a man, there's a woman who's obedient to what I've already shared with them. And I know that if if I give them more, then they will probably be, based on their track record, be obedient to do something with it again. But how do we get started? I mean, we have a lot going on. Our lives are very full. Our kids are doing 19 different things every week. I'm tired. Uh, I'm glad it's mission week, but let's be honest here. I don't really want to go to mission week if I'm just going to be made to feel guilty. I mean, we need to give more. We we need to do more. We need to pray more. And and heaven, we we, we need to give more because the budget and, 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 and it makes me tired. You know? Oh boy, Mission Week. Uh, when will it be over? Uh, when can we get on to other things that don't make me feel so burdened, so many obligations? 
And, and today we're going to look at a passage that I just think is, is awesome because we see Paul grappling with this same, the same situation. How can I help Christians in Rome be passionate about God's plan for the world? How can I see, have Christians in Rome begin to put into practice all of this stuff that they've learned? How can I help Christians in Rome see that the joy of sharing their faith with others isn't a burden? It's not a duty. It's not an obligation. How can I help Christians in Rome share what they have with joy? How, how can it be something that that, that comes out of them like an explosion of joy as they go out into the world and meet people who need the Lord. I invite you, if you have your Bibles this morning, to turn to Romans chapter 10. Paul is, is working with Christians in Rome, and Paul wants to see them grow to their full potential. Paul wants to see uh, men and women in Rome who are learning from God and growing with God but men and women who are obeying God and, and, and doing something with what they've received from God and positioning, putting themselves in a position to receive from God again. And he does this amazing thing as he's, he's thinking about how he can mobilize them for kingdom work. I wish I had time to read the whole chapter because it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful part of God's Word. But I think for today, we will focus on just the middle part of this, and I'm going to make reference to a few other places in Romans as we go along, but I'd like us to really focus our attention beginning with about verse 9, and then I'm going to read to the end of 15. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and with your with your belief, and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul is communicating a little bit of his heart for lost people. And Paul knows. We, we know Paul, don't we? I mean, Paul is, is, is really on fire with the gospel. And, and God's going to use Paul in many places to to preach to people who need the Lord, to start churches, to write doctrine, to, to do a lot of amazing things. But Paul knows that, that, that the body of Christ has many resources. And Paul knows that it's for the good of Christians in Rome to also be gripped with a God-sized plan for a big world. And so Paul isn't content just going alone. I mean, already we see when, when Paul travels, he always has people with him. I mean, people that are learning from him, people into, into whose lives he, he's speaking, people that see him at work, people that see him when he prays, and, and people that see him as he interacts with people who need the Lord. I guess in many ways, Paul was like Jesus because Jesus did the same thing. He always had his disciples with him. And so Paul is, has a, a God-sized vision for the world, and he believes that all men need to be saved. And, and Paul 
it realizes that, that the church in Rome has resources and that the church in Rome has men and women that have been gifted by God and that God wants to use them too and that God is sovereign over the church in Rome and that he's given different gifts to different people so that all the things that, that God cares about can get done. And so Paul is, is, is looking at this church in Rome and he's trying to see what could he say? What could he do? to try to mobilize that church to care about the things that God cares about. And I want to focus this morning on what Paul does with these four little questions. There's a handout in your bulletin that kind of gives an outline for the sermon. And you see there that I put the passage on one column, but then I want to really focus on the questions that Paul asks of the Roman believers and try to, try to do two things. Try to say, what is Paul saying in other words, what is the content of this message that he has for them? But the second thing is, how is Paul saying what he is saying? How come Paul does it this way? And, and I want to really focus on those questions to, uh, to get a, an answer to those two things. When we look at those four questions, they begin in verse 14, and then the, the last question is in verse 15. As we look at those questions, I think that we see a few things. And I, I must admit that I've often found this part of Scripture a little, a little strange. There's a lot of repetition going on. Paul's asking questions and not giving answers. He, he has all these questions lined up. And, and I've, I've read these things many times, and I've tried to say, okay, what does Paul do by organizing his questions in this way? And I'd just like you to think with me for a few moments as we try to get behind Paul's method. The first thing that we notice as we look at these questions is that Paul asks four questions that each demand a negative answer. Each one of those questions that Paul has lined up in verses 14 and 15 require, demand a negative answer. Now, the answers aren't given explicitly in the text. The answers are assumed. And as we read those questions, we we know that they, what the answers are. They're almost born in our hearts as we hear him ask these questions. Of course, he's asking these of Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago. But God has sovereignly preserved this text for us, and it's part of our canon of Scripture. And so when we read it, we know that Paul is asking these questions of believers in Rome. And we know that God is asking us these questions here today in Hingham. I'm going to ask these questions to you as though Paul were here, the one who penned these questions, and I want you to just think of what the answers to those questions are. They're not explicitly given, they're assumed, but I think you'll see what he's doing here. Here's the first question. How can these lost people call on the one they have not believed in? Now, he doesn't give us the answer, but the answer is obviously negative. In other words, they can't. Lost people can't call on Jesus for salvation if they don't even believe in him and don't believe that they can be saved by that. The second question is, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And again, the answer is negative. They haven't heard of Jesus. And because they haven't heard of Jesus, they can't believe in him. And because they can't believe in him, they're not going to call out and ask him to save them. Again, it's a negative answer. And the third question, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And it's obviously a negative answer. 
If people are living in darkness and no one goes and shares the good news with them, they won't know that good news and they won't know how to call out on the name of Jesus and be saved. And then, of course, the last question again demands a negative answer. And how can they preach unless they are sent? And you see what Paul does here. He organizes four questions um, next to each other. He doesn't give the answers, but the answers are obvious. They're, They're assumed. And each time, the answer is negative. I want you to think a little bit about what Paul might be doing when he does this. Think about how many times in your life things are going poorly. And you meet people along your day. You have colleagues at work, people that you know and you greet and you're friendly with, your casual friends and acquaintances. Many times a day, people might ask you how you are doing. And you might have a crisis in your life, but in your everyday casual acquaintances and the people you speak with, you don't have the time and you don't have the energy and you might not have the safety to really open up your heart and to tell them how badly things are going in your life. And I think very often we can go through life uh, greeting people and being friendly with people. Things are going terribly at home, but we can't let out that secret. And so we pretend that things are going well, even when they're not. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, your life's a mess. Uh, your kid's in, in huge trouble. Uh, you, you, you know, everything, your, your, your finances are a disaster. You want to quit your job. You, you haven't been happy there in years. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well too. You know, and here we are, pretending that things are better than they really are. And see, when Paul, he's, he's dealing with a crucial issue, and he's not mincing words. He's not pretending that, that things are good when things are going badly. And he's not scared to just lay it all out in front of us and to help us to see that the situation is negative. It's, it's no, it's bad, it's bad news. In fact, the, the good news is always bad news first. Because the bad news is that we're sinners and we need God. And if we don't have that good news and if we don't respond to that good news, we continue to live in bad news. And so Paul doesn't mince words. When Paul uh, thinks about the number of lost people in the world, people living not under the hearing of the gospel, people that don't have any scripture in their language, people that are isolated for perhaps sociological reasons, there's not a Bible-believing church in their area. Paul's heart breaks. And he doesn't pretend that things are going to be okay. He doesn't mince words and say, everything is fine when it's not. And Paul, by asking questions, I believe, wants you to see that as well. He wants me to see it too. Hey, things aren't so good. When we think of the unreached peoples in the world, things aren't very good. We need to say a lot of no's. We need to admit that it's negative. We need to be able to say it is a theological crisis. There is a crisis in the world today. The good news has come, and it has not been received. The good news has come, but it's not been widely proclaimed. The good news is here, but only some people are benefiting from it. It's a crisis because people who do not know the Lord are lost. And there's no mincing of words. There's no pretending that things are fine when they're not. Another thing has often striked me funny about these questions, and that's that there's a lot of repetition going on. Paul, why are you doing this? Why are you saying everything twice? And I want you to look at the way he has structured his questions, and I want you to notice that there's a lot of repetition, and each new question will begin 
with how the concept that the last question ended with. I'm going to read them again, and I want you to see all the repetition that's going on. He has a finely linked argument, and you'll see this is drawn out by his um, wording of the questions. How then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? That question ends with the idea of belief. And look how his next question begins. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? See, he picks up belief again to start his second question. His second question ends with hearing. How can they believe if they haven't heard? Now look at how his third question begins. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Again, his question begins linked intimately to the question posed before it. And he, can, he uh, repeats himself. And then look at the last question. His third, his third question has end with, ended with this idea of preaching the good news. And look at his last question. And how can they preach unless they are sent? What is Paul doing? He seems to be repeating himself. It seems to be a little bit strange or odd. But I wonder, these questions are, are pretty fascinating because the questions help us to see the problem, but they also give us the answer. We realize that there's a, a theological problem here. There's a crisis on hand because millions of people don't know the Lord. The, the Lord has come for them. Good news has come, and, and people don't know it. But, but the answer is also in these questions. He helps us to see the problem, but he helps us to see that, that churches who, who have this good news are, are, are being encouraged to send people out, and, and the people that are being sent out are being encouraged to share that good news. And as they come into contact with, with people who don't know the Lord, they, they'll share the good news with them, and people will hear, and some will believe, and those who believe will call out and be saved. And we realize that, that Paul not only shows us the problem, but embedded in his description of the problem is the answer. And I want you to think about how we would normally think of evangelism. Think of this world we're living in. It's gone really wrong, hasn't it? I mean, people are farther away in their worldview than perhaps they ever have been, especially in the Boston area. The world has gone strange. The world has gone wrong. And so what do we do with this? Well, I want you to think about how we would normally think of evangelism. You know, here we are, God's people. We have the good news And so we're going to come and we're going to gather. We're going to come up with our strategy. We're going to figure out how we're going to get the good news out. And then we're going to pray. And then we're going to send some people out into that big, mean world. And they're going to to look for some some people to talk to. And we're going to have a group here praying. We're going to be praying for you as you go. And then when you're out there, you know, we're going to pray that the people who hear the good news respond to it. We start with, with the good news that we have, and we go out. But when, the way Paul organizes his questions here, he's flipped it. Uh, uh, he's reversed the order. He starts his very first question. He, he has the lost person crying out to God to be saved. And then he takes a step back, and he has that person hearing the good news. And then his third question has someone preaching to them. And his last question has churches sending people out to share the good news. He's changed the order in which we normally conceive of evangelism. And at the end of his questions, Paul is focused on the church. Paul is looking at the church, and any good preacher ends with his application. You don't do your application at the beginning because no one knows what to apply. You you apply at the end. And so at the end of Paul's 
motivational questions here. At the end of his questions, he's looking at the church. He's looking at the saints in Rome. You're the last piece in this puzzle. People are lost, and it's not necessarily their fault. It's our fault because we have this good news, see. We have it. We know what the answer is, and yet we haven't yet shared it. And so somehow Paul is is looking at you, and he's looking at me, and, and he's wondering why these people are still lost because we have this answer, and, and the church is what who Paul is looking at at the end, the saints in Rome. The beginning, when I started talking about these questions, I mentioned that the answers aren't given. Now, that might not seem to be very significant, but I want to convince you this morning that it might be significant. And I want to show you a pattern that Paul seems to use as he is writing the book of Romans. You can see this in in good evangelical commentaries, this dialectical type approach that Paul is using. It's as though Paul is imagining his audience, and he's imagining the questions they have about the gospel. And all throughout the book of Romans, Paul includes the questions that people ask, and then he uses those questions as a bridge, as a motivating factor to give them the answer. And I want you to turn with me back to Romans 3. I'm just going to, I'm focused here not on theological content as much as Paul's method. If you look at the beginning of chapter 3, and we could do this in almost every chapter in Romans, it's as though Paul is imagining his audience, and as he's explaining the gospel to them, he's imagining the questions that they might raise. Look at the beginning of verse 3. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. So he raises some issues. He poses some questions. And he uses that as an example to give his teaching. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust? Look at verse 6. Certainly not. So Paul has a method here. He's getting into a rhythm. You'll see this rhythm in chapter 5. You'll see this rhythm in chapter 6. You see this rhythm in chapter 7. He asks a question, and he gives the answer. He asks the question, and he gives the answer. He asks the question, and he gives the answer. And then we get to chapter 10. And part of his method he hasn't changed, because Paul is still asking a lot of questions. In fact, most of our sermon this morning has been looking at the kinds of questions that Paul is asking. You get to 10 verses 14 and 15, and he continues to ask his questions. But we notice that something has changed. Because Paul, who normally asks questions and then gives answers, and asks questions and gives answers, and asks questions and gives answers, gets to chapter 10 and decides to change his method. He, he, he's in dialogue with this audience. And he stops giving the answers. He's asking questions. And his questions probe us. He asks questions. And his questions make us nervous. But he's, 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 he's holding back from giving the answers. Now, I asked you those questions, and I suggested that they demanded a negative response. And I think you were able to because those answers aren't that complicated, 
you could resonate with them. Even before I said they demanded a negative response, as I asked the question, the negativity, that this crisis was born in your own hearts. You saw what the answer was. And so Paul is, is trying to motivate Christians in Rome, but he doesn't want it to be an obligation. He doesn't say, we should give more. We should care more. He doesn't say, we should pray more. Now, do we need to pray more? Of course we do. Do we need to give to God's work? Of course we do. Those are no-brainers. But Paul seems to be working really hard not to say should, not to say we have to, or not to say we ought. He's changing what he's doing, and he's asking questions. He's probing our hearts. He's inviting us to enter into dialogue with him. He's asking questions, but he's holding back from giving the answer. It's as though he is hoping that the answers are born in our hearts as we hear his question. It's as though he is trying to provoke in our hearts a passion for what he's passionate about. And he knows that we don't like obligations. And he knows that, that when, when mission is a task, and when mission is a duty, and when mission is an obligation, then it's heavy, and it's hard, and it's a burden, and, and it makes me tired. And I come to mission conference tired because I know they're going to tell me I need to pray more. And I know they're going to tell me I should care more. And I should pray for that missionary that seems strange and is on the other side of the world and always wears weird clothes. And, and always, they always make me eat weird food at mission conference. I, I'm tired of it. I don't want to be told I should. Well, praise the Lord, because Paul's not telling us we should. Let's look at that very first verse of Romans 10. Brothers, this is Paul, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul gives us a little window into his own heart when he thinks about Jewish people who don't know the Lord. And when he sees Jewish people that don't know the Lord, you know what Paul says? My heart's desire, my prayer to God is that they might be saved. It's not an obligation for him. It's not a burden. It's not a task. It's not an obligation. It's coming from his heart. We see mission for Paul comes from his heart. Paul wants them to be saved. Paul could have prayed any number of things for Jewish people. But the prayer of his heart is that they would be saved. Let's look at the last verse of that same chapter, Romans 10, verse 21. Now it's God speaking. This is a quotation from Isaiah. God is looking down on his rebellious people that have wandered away from him. They're no longer being obedient to the covenant. They've walked far away. And we get a picture into God's heart for lost people. This is Romans 10, verse 21. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Isn't that an amazing picture? I mean, you know and I know that God doesn't have a body like we do. But oftentimes in Scripture, God is described in ways that we can understand. And here we have this picture of God who's up in heaven, 
looking down on his lost people that have wandered away from his covenant. And we have this picture of of God. And it's as though he's reaching out his arms to lost people. And it's as though he's saying, hey, come back to God. Come back to God. And we have this picture of God reaching out his hands. Imagine those hands after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Imagine those nail-scarred hands reaching out to the lost people of Hingham, saying, come to God. You're far away. Come to God. We see that God is passionate for lost people. I'm not here to tell you today to be a missionary in Africa or China or Korea. I know full well that maybe God will use you in that way. Some people are called to go to China, and that's a glorious thing. But all of us here are called, in one way or another, to share this new life that we have with the people around us. And Hingham, and Marshfield, and Situate, and Hanover, and Rockland, and Holbrook, and Braintree, are just as much a mission field as Africa or China or Korea. What bridges will you build into your community? How will you allow God to work in your life and encourage you, love you, so, so that this new life that, that God has, has been building into your heart and into your life, this awesome walk with God that, that you've learned so much about, all this distance you've come in your life since you first gave your life to him, all those amazing answers to prayer that you have experienced in your life with God, how, how will you let God use that for his honor and for his glory? Shouldn't mission be joyful? Shouldn't mission be filled with passion? I mean, that's what this text is saying. You know, Paul could have, could have looked out at Rome and the Christians in Rome and, and made missions a duty and called them to be good soldiers for Christ. But he doesn't. He holds back. He doesn't want it to be a burden. He doesn't want it to be an obligation. He's trying to touch their hearts. He's trying to ignite in them a passion for the things that, 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 that make God passionate. And he, he does all kinds of stuff to try to to touch our hearts, to try to ignite a little bit of a flame of passion so that when we see other people, we see them in a new way. I bet that if we asked for testimonies of what God has done in your life, we could spend all week. People would come up and say, my life was a wreck 12 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but God has changed me, and things have become new. I'm walking with God, and I'm learning from God, and I love my church, and, and I learn from, from the Word when it's, when it's preached, and my life is growing. And that's awesome. That's all you need right there, a, a changed life that continues to grow. That's it. That's it right there. That should be bubbling out of us every now and then. It, it should be coming out. I mean, it's in there. It should be coming out. 
It should be an explosion of joy. It should be a passion. It's not a duty. It's not a task. It's not a burden. Mission should be an explosion of joy. How many of you are fathers today? Are you passing on a passion for God to your kids? Moms, your daughters, do they tell, can they tell that you have a passion for God? They should. This this explosion of joy should, should, should be coming out of our hearts. Those who know us should know one thing about us. I was blind, but now I see. My life was a wreck. I was lost. I was a sinner. And someone shared the good news with me, and my life has changed. That's it. The first verse of Romans chapter 10 shows us that lost people for Paul was a passion. And the last verse of chapter 10 shows us that for God, when when, when he sees lost people, for him, their salvation is a passion. What's your passion? And what's mine? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for all the things you are doing in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would fill us with joy. I pray that you would fill us with passion and make us people who radiate joy. We pray that you would bless this church. We pray that many more people would find new life in Christ in the towns around this church and that people would come to you, that their lives would change, that they would grow into disciples and that we would continue to multiply ourselves where you've placed us. We thank you, Father, for all that you will do. We pray these things in Jesus' name.